Our Bible reading is from the Gospel of Luke and chapter 7, and we're starting at verse 11. If you would like to find it in the Bible, it is also on the sheet and also on the screen, Um, but if you'd like to find it in the Bible, it is on page 1035. So starting from Luke, verse 11. Soon afterwards... Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Well, thank you, Jane, for reading to us. Um, Because there's so many more people sitting on this side, I thought I'd stand on this side (laughs) to speak from here. We don't often get an outing into the pulpit. Thank you, too, to Monica for just sharing some words about how motherhood has been for you recently, fitting for Mothering Sunday. And in the series of people that Jesus has met um, in the Gospels, this one was chosen for Mothering Sunday. And uh, this is an episode which only Luke writes about. The mother in the story, as you'll have gathered, was a widow, and we probably know her all by the place where it happened. We call her the Widow of Nain. Like the whole episode, the place is only mentioned in the Bible here as well. This uh, town name, we think, is five miles southeast of Nazareth on a hillside, uh, a hill down into a valley with one road in or out. And it could hardly be said to be an important place. But to me, it's always striking that nowheresville places like Nain do get mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Luke didn't have to mention the place name here, did he? But he was a historian, and he likes to anchor his account of Jesus' life in exact pinpoint locations. Because the God of the Bible revealed himself in history and in geography, you want to put it like that. It's one of the things, actually, that sets Christianity apart from other religions. As soon as God becomes a human being... Inevitably, he occupies space and time. So at some point in the three years of his ministry, Jesus was here in this precise location, Nain. And not just the place was important, but the timing as well. As his entourage was making its way up the hill into Nain, another crowd was coming down out of the town, a funeral procession for a young man who probably had died that very day. Burials happening quickly after the death. 
So that was the day when in God's timetable, in Jesus' diary, that Jesus came to Nain. Or as verse 11 puts it, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And that one verse is the moment in the limelight for the name of Nain. It's never mentioned again in the Bible. Now today, I don't know if you're up on this, I always like to parade my vast technological knowledge before you, but I don't know if you've come across uh, this way recently that's come to describe a location not by a place name, but by three words randomly chosen, which give you the details side even more specifically. Maybe you've heard of the app, What Three Words?, There was a funny moment for me in the youth weekend last weekend when the speaker asked everyone what three words described how they felt about reading the Bible on their own. And sharp as a whip, one of the teenagers answered with three words exactly as requested. What three words? She just said, get the app. (laughs) Like so much, I'm not sure the joke was fully appreciated at the time, but the person was referring to this location app which uses three words to pinpoint your exact location, more accurately even than a six-figure grid reference on a map. So if you dial 999, emergency services can locate you more accurately than by a postcode, even if you're stuck halfway up a mountainside. Now let me run a quick test for you. If I say three words, inclined, slyly, horn, you should be able to tell me exactly where I'm talking about. Well, that is the three word, the what three words address for All Saints Church building. Inclined, slyly, horn. Now you know, don't you? In fact, it's even more precise than referring to the whole building because those three words fit for three square meters within the building, roughly where Steve and Joe are sitting, I think, somewhere like that. And if we crossed a line into the next three square meter uh, grid, it would have a different three words in a unique combination. This is a a preamble. If I'm allowed, I want to use three words taken from Luke chapter 7, which, if you translate them literally, are single words, just to give us the coordinates of this little episode that we had in our Bible reading just tonight. What three words really put Nain on the map? I want to suggest there are these three words. Widow, rise, and visited. I think those three words, literal translations in single words, will take us right to the heart of this encounter. So first then, widow. Let me read on in verse 12. As Jesus approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. In the notice, as I mentioned, that cap course that we're running in April. I'm so glad that uh, Vicky's running that. I'm glad that Gavin has done the training for it as well, because the God of the Bible has a concern for the needy. And if we can help them and reflect that concern, it is a good thing to do. In the Old Testament, there's a triad of troubled and needy people whom God commanded to be protected. Orphans, foreigners, the aliens, as they're sometimes translated, and widows, because they were particularly vulnerable to exploitation. God's law gave them special protection, and they needed it. 
But never mind what the law said. Those who were supposed to be guardians of the law in Jesus' day ignored it. Jesus described the religious leaders as hungry wolves who devoured widows' houses. In other words, when the man of the house died, the widow and the estate would be snapped up and swallowed down by these rapacious people. So this woman, as a widow, was already the epitome of weakness. But if you think about it, wave after wave of trouble seems to have come her way. Look again at the description of the funeral in verse 12. A dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So first, her husband had died. That was bad enough. She's emotionally and economically ruined, we can assume by that. Then her son had died, another funeral. What pain that is as well. Think of the unnatural agony of a parent having to bury the one who should outlive them the one who they've worked so hard to raise and send forth into adult life, predeceasing them. And then worse still was to follow, because he was the only son of his mother, says Luke. So there's no patter of tiny feet afterwards to give her any hope for the future. And therefore all she saw now was a miserable, solitary existence. As I say, wave after wave of trouble had happened. As Shakespeare puts it in Hamlet, when sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions, wave after wave of trouble for her in her life. The incident before this had someone very different meeting Jesus. I think we had this guy earlier in the series, uh, the centurion. Admittedly, he was a foreigner, a Roman soldier, But he had power and influence and reputation as he made his approach to Jesus. This woman had none of that. She was destitute. She had nothing. And Jesus had an appointment with her that day, a widow. You've probably heard of Dr. Bernardo, who founded homes in Victorian London for homeless children. They were the lowest of the low in his day. And it was his Christian principles that drove him on in his work. One case that really seared his conscience was the case of a boy called Carrots, a ginger-haired 11-year-old boy called John Summers, who turned up half-naked and half-starved at one of Bernardo's first homes in Stepney Causeway. There was no bed for him, but he was given a meal and promised lodgings a week later. His mother was a gin drinker, She left him to fend for himself. He tried selling matches, but the weather was stormy. There was no market really for them. And he was found dead six days later, just a day before he would have got his place in the home. At that moment, Bernardo's supposed to have resolved a new policy. No destitute child ever refused admission. In fact, those words were printed above the doors of his homes. No destitute child ever refused admission. Now, you could say that destitution is the only condition of eligibility in Christ's kingdom. Everyone has to acknowledge their need, their bankruptcy. And this widow qualified, didn't she? I wonder if you've had that realization as well, that we have nothing to offer Jesus 
but wonderfully, he has limitless resources to offer us. I think it was lovely to have Monica bear testimony to that. Her resources running down and running dry, but Jesus able to meet them. So, on to our next word. We've looked at widow. The next word you won't find in Luke 7 exactly, but it's this word, rise. Widow, rise. Because literally that's the word which Jesus uses to address the young man on his funeral bier. Get up, rise. And it all begins with Jesus' compassion in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. It's actually the first time in the gospel that the title Lord is given to Jesus. He is Lord, but he has a heart for the lowly. He notices their tears. And it's not just tea and sympathy he has to offer, but resurrection. What happens in the next verse really is unthinkable. Verse 14, then he went up and touched the beer they were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up or rise. I love the little eyewitness detail there. The bearers stood still, it says. Of course they did. Nobody but them would dare touch that funeral beer and instantly have to be quarantined for a week for contact with an unclean dead body. You didn't touch a corpse. And you didn't speak to them either, unless you're Jesus. Anyone here ever say to a coffin, arise? If you did, I expect you said it very quietly when nobody else was looking. But Jesus did that, and he left no room for maneuver. Look how he staked his reputation on it. Young man, I say to you, get up, is what he said. So he didn't fall to his knees and pray to God, Lord, please raise the dead boy. He touched the body. And he gave the order himself, I say to you. And the contamination doesn't travel from the dead body to Jesus. Resurrection travels in the opposite direction, from Jesus to the dead body. So my second word for the story is that command Jesus spoke to the corpse, rise. And I think there's a double meaning in the word that he used. It's the word that the widow might have said to her son in the morning on occasions. Up you get, rise. Maybe you're a teenager and your parents will have to say it to you tomorrow morning. Wakey, wakey, time to get up. Sometimes there's not much response when parents try that line, is there? But when Jesus says, wakey, wakey, to a corpse, things happen. Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to talk, which is another lovely eyewitness touch the voice she most wanted to hear speaking again. I'm not sure what I was talking about. This guy probably told people later. Probably just wanted to stop the funeral proceedings before anything too final happened. Put me down. Get this cloth off me and don't put any more of that smelly old spice on me, thanks. Jabber, jabber, jabber. Maybe, I don't know. He starts talking and then this lovely phrase, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. A tender touch, that is, isn't it? Maybe it's a word for somebody here for Mothering Sunday. Jesus understands both the joy and the agony of motherhood. He knows 
See, it wasn't just pious talk when he said, don't cry. He's the one person who, in the face of death, really can wipe away tears. In the end, there's a promise in the last book of the Bible that he'll do that in heaven itself if we belong to him. He's the one who raises people from the sleep of death. With no fuss, it's actually easier for him than it is for a parent to say, up you get, rise to a teenager. So that little word, it tells us, does it not, something very important about Jesus. As we face our own death, or the agony of separation from a loved one who dies, Jesus himself would briefly wear the paraphernalia of death when he was crucified. Jesus was buried, but as we're going to celebrate in a few weeks' time, he rose from the grave. I suppose the young man whom Jesus raised that day would still have to die again. He would still have another funeral. But Jesus' tomb is empty. So he can give that word to us, with the same death-defeating effect. Not that we'll necessarily be spared death, but that he can give us resurrection beyond the grave, as we've already sung this evening, and wipe away every tear for us and for those who survive us. Well, one last word very briefly. Widow, rise, visited. Again, it's not actually in the text in a word we can see, because it's a... Uh, sort of spun out paraphrase that we've got in our Bibles. But it is there. It's a one word, literal translation of what the crowd said after this amazing miracle. Verse 16, I think it is. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help or visited his people. This news about Jesus, says Luke, spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Of course it did. Everybody recognized the hand of God. And even if they hadn't joined up the dots fully yet, uh, maybe there was more truth to what they were saying than they realized. Luke's going to give us lots more evidence of who Jesus is in his gospel that he wants us to see. But already everybody had some sense that God was at work in Jesus Christ. They had prophets in the Old Testament like Elijah and Elisha, who'd had great miraculous powers at work in their lives. They too had raised the dead. But with them, it was in answer to prayer. And it seems as though it was apparently hard, a bit more of a struggle for them. For Jesus, it was effortless. No praying, uh, no lying down flat on top of the corpse, which had to happen back in Two Kings. He just said, I tell you, rise. And it happened. So the voice of God, which had been silent for hundreds of years, 400 years or so, and now another prophet comes, maybe even greater than those earlier prophets, Elijah and Elisha. God has come to save his people and to judge his enemies. And that's the sense of God visiting his people. If you thought that God had left his people... Hope was at a low ebb for them at that point, that he's distant. Well, this episode says to them, think again. A miracle like this shows that he's very present. He has showed up. He's visited in person. He's come. 
This is the moment people are realizing when the author, the guy who's written the storyline, has become an actor and has stepped onto the stage of the world himself. He's active and he's involved. And when you realize that God did that in Jesus Christ to the extent that he took death on himself, dying on the cross for our sin, he stooped that low uh, right into the sadness and suffering and sin, bearing all the consequences of human wickedness in full himself, while a fuller, even more wonderful sense to God visiting planet Earth becomes obvious. What a day it was for this widow and for her son, and I guess for the whole town, the day God visited little old Nain, and in the person of Jesus Christ, showed up in person. And I just want to finish by asking, have you come to the point where you realize that Jesus visiting Nain is in parallel to him visiting any other Smallville ordinary place? Little old Little Shelford, for example. Or can you put in not a place name, but your name, Simon Scott? See, his heart goes out to each one of you tonight in your desperate need. And he's tapping on your life just as he tapped on that funeral beer. He's saying to you, rise up to resurrection life. He's visiting you, waiting for you and for me to say today and every day, yes, Lord, visit me. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Let's do life. Let's do eternity together, you and me. Amen.